I'm Amber Harper from the Burned In Teacher Podcast and a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Good morning, everybody. I hope you guys are having a wonderful either Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, or you're probably maybe well into Sunday, depending where you are joining us from. But as always, we are here to bring you an amazing show. And first of all, I'd love to thank every single one of you that are watching us live at this moment. Those of you that will be re-watching and listening to the podcast later, thank you as always from the bottom of my heart for all of your amazing support and making my EdTech life what it is today. And today, again, I am really excited because I get to talk about one of the things that I am really passionate about. As many of you that follow me on social media, I am a big AR, VR kind of guy. And today we have an amazing guest that is going to share her amazing story as far as her travels through education, K through 12, and then moving into higher ed and the amazing things that she is doing with ARVR. So again, thank you so much. And today we have Dr. Morris. Dr. Morris, how are you this morning? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Super excited to be here. Just ready to get our uh, our conversation going. I'm really exactly. Excited. Hey, like you mentioned uh, in one of your social media posts, Saturdays are for VR. So they gonna, are. <laughs> we, yes. So we're definitely going to have just an awesome laid back conversation. We really just want to hear from you. Again, like I mentioned, your experience, what you've seen, how you became interested. Number one, in education, how did you choose this field? Number two, how did you get into the world or immerse yourself into the world of AR and now how you're bringing that into higher ed? So we're really, really excited to hear all of that. So Dr. Morris, if you don't mind, if you can introduce yourself to our viewers and just give us a little bit about your context in education. And if you don't mind, I always like to ask if you can add one interesting thing about yourself that our guests may not know. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. So I am Dr. Messina Morris. I am a native of Decatur, Georgia, but my family hails from Savannah, Georgia. So a little bit of country girl, a little bit of city girl. I was educated in Atlanta, Georgia, went to Clark Atlanta University for my undergrad degree, bachelor's of science in chemistry. And then I attained my uh, master's degree and PhD um, from Emory University, also in Atlanta. So I'm homegrown and I stay here. Uh, so I love the South. I love um, being around my community and family. And then I went on into higher education um, after a stint in K-12. So I did, I'm certified science grades six to 12. And I taught high school chemistry and physical science for a few years. And then I transitioned to the higher ed space through University of Phoenix Online, actually. So that was my first intro to online education and using technology in a different way. And then that I was an adjunct there and then moved on to Spelman. And then I finally landed now at Morehouse College. So currently, I am the assistant professor of chemistry at Morehouse College. I'm also the academic program director of the chemistry program there. So I am what you all um, would consider the head of the department. So we moved our academic structuring. And so I am the student facing leader of, of our program, which has been a joy through the last three years. I am also, uh, because we do teaching scholarship and service, uh, my scholarship and research is um, around autism. So I have a son named Seth who's 13 and he's on the autism spectrum. And he has been my my muse and my passion uh, for, for, for solving problems and, and creating inclusivity in STEM education especially. And so my lab group, the Morris Research and Innovation Group, we 3D print specialized lab equipment for 
those who have autism spectrum disorder so that they can use the PECS system um, to, which is the pictorial uh, exchange communication system in order to do lab experiments and so um, and, and understand quantity. So that's been like my first step into integrating all of the things that I knew, having students learn how quantities and things were derived, but I do that. But I wear a lot of other hats too. So one of my major hats that I've been wearing lately that I, I love is um, being the project director of our virtual reality project. So we are Morehouse in the Metaverse. We are a program that consists of a team of four professors across several disciplines, humanities as well as sciences. And we launched our courses in virtual reality during the pandemic in the spring of 2021. And I always say Saturdays are for VR because we all have children and we all teach and we all are either directors of something else or our own PIs and we have our own projects going on. But Saturday night was the night that we would all get in the headset and just create together. So it's been really an exciting adventure. Um, not knowing how we were going to get this done, but getting it done anyway. And um, so that that's what I do. And, and then this semester, I am working with uh, the Michelson Institute on uh, integrating intellectual property education into the classroom. And so part of that is understanding how intellectual property will change as we integrate all of these digital technologies, including VR, including talking about the metaverse, how will copyrights change? What about NFTs? Just so many different things. This global economy that is going to happen, that is going to be a bit different. How do we talk about security in the metaverse? So we are moving into a, a, a whole new realm of what we want our students to know. Originally, it was just them being in a VR classroom, but it's moving onwards now as we're in our second semester with our second cohort we've added more professors for us being um, content creators or teaching our students how to be content creators in this space too so lots of great things going on in Morehouse and I can keep going on and on but uh, overall I, I wear a lot of hats <laughs> I love it I love it I mean everything you share Dr. Morris I mean just your passion your experience everything that you're doing and really just stepping up the game as far as higher ed and just being very innovative, stepping out of that box and taking risks. And that's so important about innovation and being those early adopters and bringing the, you know, that new tech and bringing in, you know, the talks of AR, VR, but now taking it deeper. But one thing that I love that you mentioned, and we'll talk a little bit more about that because it was actually something that came up while we were having our little conversation backstage, but you mentioned content creator a lot, content creator, content creator. So, yeah. well, we'll kind of talk a little bit about that because I love, like you said, you yourself are creating content and it kind of moved from the sage on the stage up in higher ed to now, you know, being, you know, the guide on the side and allowing the students right. to be those creators. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But I just like to kind of get have our audience members always get to know a little bit more, even though you described your background really well. But, you know, just in that other level of, you know, where did your passion mm -hmm. for education begin? Is it something that you knew you always wanted to do? Or maybe like myself, it was something that you fell into and then fell in love with. So if you can share a little bit about your story as you started, you know, your passion for education. The, the origin story. So I am descendant from a family of educators. So shortly after slavery ended, my family in Scriven County, Georgia, Sylvania, Georgia, started the first church, but also school for Black children. So uh, Wesley Chapel AME is the name of the church, and inside of that church was the first school um, for newly freed slaves. And literally everyone <laughs> for the next few generations have been teachers. So growing up, I was I was, a, I was a curious kid. I was a scientist. So I have a brother who had meningitis at the age of four, left him brain damaged. I'm the third child of four. He's the first child, but he's eight years my senior. And we never knew him normal, any of our siblings. And so 
I was really curious, always wanted to find a way to fix him, cure him. You know, I had a lot of compassion and empathy as a child uh, towards him. And so for me, I was always going to be this doctor or scientist or something of that sort. Now, I am all of those things still, but I was always curious. Um, And so that made me very, very good in science. Um, I was always very observant. And um, I always told myself, everyone in here teaches. Everyone's an elementary school teacher. My um, auntie ran a daycare up until she was in her mid-80s, you know, my mother, she's a she's an education person. Like she didn't formally be in education, but she's watched so many children and, and had kids in her, her house that knew how to read at like 18 months, like my children. I mean, she was just really, really good about it. But for me, education really hit where I finally succumbed to like, okay, I'm really good at this around graduate school. So I was uh NSF Prism Fellow. And so what we did was we took problem-based learning and um, investigative case-based learning into the K-12 classroom. And so I learned a little bit more about what education looked like publicly and how I could change it. And I got excited too, because high school was where I really found myself, found out who I wanted to be. And it was fun. And um, I went to Southwest Cab High School, so quick quick plug there. Um, And so it was like, really, you were expected to be excellent in my high school. And so because of that, I had such a great time. And I felt like I could give that back to students at a very uh, integral time of their life where they're really still trying to decide and figure out who they are. And I just fell in love with being in K-12 at that time. Like, I I really did. I was like, you can really change some things. And K-12 changes often. They try to keep up with what is needed in, in, in fields of um, education or other disciplines so that students can can be impacted and, and, and be ready for college and the next level. And so for me, being able to do some active learning things, um, to bring in real world exercises and create those. So we created the content too, uh, was like, oh, this is in my wheelhouse. I could do this. And so that's kind of how I started. So immediately after I finished my PhD, I went back and got my education certification through an alternative prep program. And, and I mean, I zipped right through it because I had been in school for a while. So I, I just, I tackled it in, um, and just fell in love with being in the classroom. And I just, my classroom was always an active classroom. We always used technology in the classroom. I just never wanted it to be where I was standing up in front of my students just talking. And so I always believe that you teach from your feet, not from your seat. You have to move around, you have to engage, you have to embrace students. And then I have this holistic view of education. I didn't want to just educate the mind of children. I wanted to educate the hearts and the minds of children. I wanted to really make them know that they were cared for and loved and accepted and and that they could really, really do whatever their mind um, want, you know, whatever they wanted in their mind to do. And I stood on the shoulders of so many giants. I had great teachers growing up when I really think about it. Um, my experience in education and I went to public education was was a very full one. Um, the expectation was that I was to be great. And so I am exactly who now sitting down, like thinking about who I was as a little girl, who I, who I thought I'd be. So. Wow, that is amazing. That is just a, an amazing story. Like you said, your origin story, how you fell into education, the way that you worked. There's a couple of things that you mentioned in there that you highlighted that really resonate with me as well, which was the way that you have an active classroom, implementing yeah. technology, uh, embracing students. And really, you know, when I fell into education, I, I came in from a business background came into education and I just, I don't know, it was something that I never wanted to do. And I said like, why would I want to be a teacher? But once I got the opportunity, I, I just fell in love with all of it. I mean, granted, I, I didn't know what a standard was. I didn't know how to break anything down. But to me, it was about building that relationship first. So like you hit on a lot of things, it's really making the child, making your student feel welcome, feel loved, feel appreciated, feel listened to. Mm-hmm. And that goes a long way. And that really helped me as I transitioned 
from my marketing degree, I was selling to my students. I was selling algebra. I was selling, and per I, I tell people I was personalized learning, personalizing learning before it even became a buzzword because yeah. it all started with that. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I tell people is I didn't really hone in my skills until I went from high school down to elementary, where I felt that I can be take more of a risk. And the reason that that is, is because in our district, it, we had a block schedule. So it was accelerated block. I would only see those students for about a couple of months, and then I would get a whole new batch of students. But in elementary, I had them all year. So I was able to hone in my skills and take those risks. And like you said, being very active, bringing the tech out, embracing the students and building them up. And I think like Josh Tovar here, I want to give a shout out to Josh Tovar, who's joining us as always, and uh, Ryan also, who's uh, joining us as well. And uh, he, talking about, you know, the the guide on the side, going out there, being in, just in the power zone, being within your students, walking around and having them create content. Now, for yourself, I mean, were you always a very tech-savvy teacher while you were in the classroom or were you kind of just putting yourself out there sometimes because I know for myself when I took those risks you know you're putting yourself out there at the risk of being very vulnerable and at sometimes not being able to answer questions but I found that that's where I learned the best not only for myself but then the students also learned that hey it's okay my teacher may not know everything but hey I taught my teacher how to do this and they got excited because that made their right. day <laughs> So a little bit of both. I can tell you, I had a mom and a dad who were like way ahead of their time. So my father was an auto mechanic. My mother was a cosmetologist and housewife. And my dad didn't care if he had to work on a thousand cars. We were going to have the latest technology. So the Commodore 64 came out in the 80s. We had it. I was the Donkey Kong winner. Now I didn't know how to do anything but play games, but that was kind of like I was exposed to technology really, really young. And then obviously all the other gaming systems came about, the Atari and all of these other things. And so I gamed for quite some time and then studies got real serious. And then my brother took over uh, the gaming lane. But when I got into the classroom, I had a history of always having some kind of computer, some kind of technology, some kind of gaming system where it made me curious or at least courageous enough to say, oh, we have now these, these probes that we can do these chemistry experiments with. Mm, it can connect to this software and I would tinker with it, right? It wouldn't be great, but I, I had the courage to do it. But then I would have students that would come over my shoulder and would say, Dr. Morris, you didn't know that you could pull this screen to this side and pull this screen to this side. And then like, you can see all of your screens all at once instead of flipping back and forth or, you know, they would just come and, show me little tricks and things that just continue to hone. So I've learned from my students as much as they learned from me. So when I would bring new tech out or new experience, things for them to experience, they would then show me and engage me. What I found out this particular semester, because I opened myself now, last semester when we did the VR, it was just us creating, working with Victory XR and Steve Grubbs has a wonderful team and they trained us and taught us everything that we needed to do. This semester, I opened myself up to students being content creators with me, right? And developing their own IFX objects or creating their own rooms in the creation rooms. And have I gotten such a surprise and we haven't even really gotten started in any of the lessons. We've just been visiting. These students have been in the Oculus already for like months. They've had their own at home, but they just probably didn't bring it, you know, some of them. And students have just taken off and, and, and have come up with so many ideas. I'm like, I can't even implement it all. So now we're really going to focus on uh, content creation for some of my students who were in VR with me last semester in my advanced and organic class. And now they're in my analytical chemistry course. They're going to be creating some things, some artifacts and other things. And then um, my other students, they're supposed to be just engaging in this, in the lessons, but they're already starting to create uh, what they think are scenes and saying, hey, Dr. Morris, look at these clips. This is great. We should use this. So I am just kind of open to allowing it to flow however it flows this semester, instead of being really rigid in what I want them to know, because they're going to meet the learning outcomes simply because of the way that I have it staged.
Perfect. But I want them to be a part of it. And they are, they're already taking off and, and doing their own thing. It's great. You know, and that's wonderful, like you mentioned there. And now we can kind of get into that. But for yourself, how important, you know, was content creation, allowing your students to really dive in deep and create? What were some of the things, you know, as opposed to maybe, let's say, teacher down the hall who is still, you know, lecturing and, you know, not to take anything away from lectures, there can right. be some, some uh, you know, teachers and professors that are very effective with lectures and they're very mm -hmm. engaging. But within your experience, which seems very similar to mine, where I really wanted the students to create, you know, what were some of the things for you that you thought like, man, there's something here, you know, and allowing and empowering students. At first, I really was hesitant when I began teaching to allow students to have free range. I, it was it was because in our classroom management course, they teach you to kind of be the sage on the stage, to have control, total control, and, and to set up all these boundaries um, and rules and routines and practices. For me now, I have learned, like I said, starting to, to put together things. And I mentor students a lot. So students are always around me after the, the, the school, you know, period or class period is over. And because I've had students always around me in that way, where I've been able to engage in other things that have happened in their life, I've learned from them that they have skills and gifts that they can also contribute to the class. Things that we don't get to discuss because we're so focused on meeting the standard. And when I discovered that, it gave me, okay, I would choose particular students to then be leaders of groups. And so it kind of started off as a slow um, evolution of me then saying, okay, all of you all have something to contribute. So go for it. And, and learning how to differentiate instruction in that way, where learning took place more authentically because students were able to actually not think my way, but think come to the answer in the way that was more like how they already thought. And it's taught me so much about how to layer lessons and scaffold learning and giving them the opportunity to flourish, but not struggle. You know, that was the thing that I had to really learn how to balance was how to allow them the room to flourish and guide them, but not give it to them, but then also not let them be frustrated into quitting, you know, or giving up. And once you find that intricate balance and what really works for you, I think that it can be a beautiful thing. Um, seeing so many students really engage in the process. And I've found that many of my students who would often be left behind in other subjects are now the leaders in my course. Um, in ways that they didn't even think that they could be simply because I gave them a chance to fail forward. Yes, I love that failing forward. And, uh, you know, I think everything that you said just really at least makes me feel great that, you know, what I did do in the classroom was is very similar to what you were doing. And I was like, all right, this is great. And yeah. uh, so let's take that now, that experience. And now that you are in the higher ed setting with your student and with your students, and you mentioned a little bit how they're really diving in deep and a lot of them are, you know, creating content and just immersing themselves more into this technology, you know, was there at some point, you know, as your students are coming in this cohort, when you said, okay, this is the way we're going to do the class. And, you know, maybe some of them were like, well, I, I don't know what to expect. I, I've, I thought that this was going to be a traditional, maybe like lecture, a little bit of tech. And were there any kind of surprises there, uh, as far as students just being shocked at how different this experience was going to be as opposed to maybe some previous classes that they were taking that were very lecture style instead? I'm always looking for that. Like, am I doing too much? Is it is it affecting them? Is that not what they expected? And surprisingly, I've gotten less pushback by integrating different activities and things because then students aren't just stuck on this one subject doing it the same way over and over again and I don't know 16 weeks can be a long time 
for students to just engage in one way. Um, not saying that setting up uh, routines aren't important, but I found that I got less, I've gotten less pushback from students when I integrate new technology and new things, simply because they see me also engaging in it. So it's not like I'm saying, hey, use this technology, do this, and then I step back, which I've, I've had courses that were designed that way and they failed terribly. Uh, but by me saying, hey, we're getting in the headset, I'm getting in my headset, um, we're doing this together. Or even when we're coding, like when we're coding things, and I'm not like the best coder, but I have students that are, and, you know, we'll get in there and they're like, Doc, you know, that run that back again, like you, you know, that that, that wasn't right, or you missed this. And, and they see me figuring it out. So they see the process. And then they're like, oh, if, if she's still kind of in the process of learning and growing, then they start developing that growth mindset. Oh, well, then I can grow and change and I don't have to be stuck, you know, because they see me and I'm like, I'm on this problem. I cannot move from here. And then I'll show it to them and they'll just like, oh, doc, because you didn't do it this way. And so it's like I've opened myself up to my students to allow them to see the flaws in me, which is really, really difficult, um, especially when you feel like you've attained this, these, these credentials and you're supposed to be, and you're responsible. And I, I don't think it's really ego in the sense of, I just think it's, it's almost like you're the responsible party and, you know, you take pride in being responsible for guiding students to where they're supposed to be versus, you know, I'm just this egomaniac and I think that I need, I know everything. I don't really think it's, it's a lot of that, especially not at Morehouse. We have great, great professors. I think that a lot of it is that I'm responsible for making sure that these students get this thing. And, you know, sometimes we feel like we need to make sure that they get it in a particular way because that's how we also got it too, right? Yeah, exactly. But, and um, you know, opening up to, I tell myself, I don't know everything. I don't know. If you want to know everything, Google it. Um, but I don't. And I've been in this field a very long time. And this field is rapidly changing. And that's why I read journals. And that's why I, you know, read news stories and, and try to figure things out. And you should, too, embrace it, not just as a part of, you know, this is just something I'm studying, but embrace it as a part of your lifestyle. This is something that I'm interested in. And this is a zone that I like to stay in. And I want to know everything about. So, I kind of like shape it like that, but they see me struggle with certain concepts and things like that, which also makes them be okay to do the same. So, excellent. I really love what you're saying there, and and it's great that you know you're we're vulnerable sometimes. I mean, yeah. we're not going to know all the answers, but I love what you said. Hey, if you need to find the answer to something, Google it. And oftentimes, I feel that I tell teachers it's like we we can't teach like Google doesn't exist. I mean, it's. Google is out there. They're going to find information. Information is at their fingertips. So if, if we don't know it, it's okay. It's not on us. I mean, and but however, like you said, we do need to be responsible and we continually have to work and we have to read and research and follow people and reach out to people or go straight to the source, which is one of the great things that I love about doing the show when there's something that I'm really interested about and passionate about, I'm going to go to the source and I'm going to invite right. somebody on that's going to, you know, help me through their process, what they've done, what they've learned, and take those things, those concepts, add them to my teacher tool belt. And it's just a little extra seasoning into my ed tech life yes. that now I can implement, you know, K through 12. And now in the future, right now, currently with my doctoral studies, you know, things that I can go ahead and bring into that as well. So it's it's that growth mindset. You never stop learning. Yeah, we have we have a question here from Josh Tovar. And so Josh says, you know, basically what you were talking about, you know, what would this look like in public education? So I'm going to talk about it in terms of public education as it is now. But then I want to talk about it as it has been. So we're living through a pandemic, right? So, so public education has changed a bit. You have students that are, um, you know, home learning virtually while some are still. So there's a lot of hybrid situations. So what it looks like in public education for me now is that students are safe and able to engage in an asynchronous learning environment, um, be in the same space with their peers and their teachers 
interacting, socializing, um, learning, engaging with content differently in a way that they can actually interact with the with the scene, right? Versus just it being a flat 2D representation of something that they're learning. Um, and so I think that now more than ever, uh, those safeguards or what VR offers is important for students to continue to engage and learn because some students really need that social interaction. They really need to know that their teacher is present and there, like where they can reach and touch them. And with haptic feedback, you can reach over. I, I never forget high-fiving one of my students and he was just like, you can see his avatar just kind of jump back like, wait, what happened? I didn't expect that, you know, or, or reaching over and touching their shoulder. And they're like, whoa, you, you know, I felt that, you know, the vibration, like you touched me or you bumped into me. And, and all of those things make it so realistic that it relaxes students when they're in the headset and allows them to engage. And then there's no distractions. So students don't have to worry about what, what text messages coming over their phone, what, um, things are, are, are happening around them, even though they're in their homes. Um, if they find a safe space you, can, space, you can do it in a seated mode. You can be moving around, but most of the time, all of our lessons, students are still seated. So it, it for me, takes a, a, a bit of worry away from, from parents. So parents have really struggled with, how am I going to get my student to be in front of this computer all day long without me telling them to sit here and engage. Well, you put them in a headset and they're with their teacher, just like they're, you know, in a, in a way where their teacher can say, hey, sit, hey, come here. Cause you can summon everybody. You can lock people in seats. You can make them pay attention to you, you know? And so you can't do that even in a classroom, you know, you're trying to round everybody up to, to sit one place. But if you lock them in place in virtual reality on the Engage platform, at least I know, you set those chairs on, you summon everyone and then you lock those seats. No one can move. You can mute everybody <laughs> so no one can talk. You can make it where they can just talk to their neighbor you know, with 3D voice. So it's so many different things that you can do, but then it takes the worry away from the parent who's like, oh my gosh, my student is going to get up and they're just going to walk away. Well, no, when they're in their headset and they're not distracted and they're just totally locked in, they're engaged. They're engaged in a way. And then they have an adult, this authority in the classroom with them that is making them also, oh, wait, we're in class. You know, let me pay attention. So for the pandemic, it's not worrying about social distancing. It's not worrying about having a mask on all day. Yeah, you will have your headset on. And I think that there are times that you need a break. But I think that it has its own utility in a way that can be helpful until we get back on a, on a track where the Delta variant isn't taking over our lives, right? Um, what it looks like if we are back to what our new normal was is that we have the ability to have hubs where, where students can, can go and experience virtual reality. So just like how we have uh, learning stations that we've always set up for our students, um, you can incorporate VR as a learning station. You can do the same thing as everyone's in VR, but just sitting in their desks. I think that has its own um, utility where then instead of students being in the classroom and they're locked in these desks and they can't move in VR, they put on their headsets and they're mobile. They can, you can set up a room and they can move around and be in groups and the, the room can be large. They can be in space. They can be on Mars. They can, you know, uh, be at the basketball court or they could be in a cafe sitting and, and having a chit chat with, with one another. So for me, even in the classroom, it has its uses because they can all just have their headsets on and be expand their boundaries. They don't have to be locked into this classroom or feel like, oh gosh, you know, uh, everybody move the desks. You know, we got to spread the desk out and then we got to set up these stations. I spent so much time rearranging my room because I had an active classroom. And then there are times when like we would be in our chemistry lab setting, you can't move those benches. But if I had everyone in VR, I could create whatever space I want to create for students to interact and be in groups together. And now they can, they have 3D pens in there and you can write and they can talk and they can engage and take pictures and snapshots uh, and record these things so they can play them back. It has so much utility that students can, I think, really get more out of the experience than they're getting right now.
Excellent. I, and I love that. Like you said, you, they're immersed in the content, but they're also creating content in there and you're providing experiences, learning experiences that are engaging that they may not otherwise have. For example, like when you said, it's like you can be on the moon yeah. on the surface of Mars and they're actually getting that experience where obviously, you know, we can't take a field trip to Mars because right. that would be too darn expensive, but you're yeah. giving them that experience there. So Josh had a question here and maybe, you know, this may be a little far ahead or maybe do you know if there may be some strides into moving, maybe possibly trying out some state testing, you know, within these devices? I mean, we I know we do it with Chromebooks. They have lock screens. You shared a little bit of the utilities that you can have as far as, you know, locking out. Uh, you know, students putting them all on mute, maybe just, you know, focusing on what they're doing within their headset. Uh, but also, if you might touch in a little bit on those students that may need remediation, how can this technology help improve that? Okay, so two things. I've always had a classroom where I've had differently able learners, literally. Um, I've had students on the spectrum. I've had students that have dyslexia. I've had students that has dyscalculia. Uh, I've had students that just have processing disorders, students with mental health issues. So many different learning styles and ways of engaging with the content. What people can never understand is like, how come your students who are here in this group score just as high on your testing as everyone else? Tech has always been the great equalizer for me. So in my classroom, I've used tech to engage students with different learning needs. I've allowed them to be able to have additional chances and options, which builds their confidence, which helps build those that muscle memory, um, relieves that anxiety, and has allowed them to actually soar when it came to than taking the state test. In the VR headset, on the Engage platform, what I loved so much about it was you can do assessments in there. So you can train your students, just like how we use computer programs to, to give them that extra practice. You can actually train your students to be um, in this setting be relaxed in this setting while being assessed. And you can put up information within the assessment that they can take in and then answer questions and then get immediate feedback on how they're doing. So I gave my students an exam in the headset. And what I loved about it was the references were on the wall around the room. When they open up their exam, only they can see their exam. I don't have to worry about are they going to see someone else's paper or answer? I don't have to worry about, are they going to look? And they were free to roam and move around the room and gather information from the references that were provided in that way and then answer the questions. I think that for them, it alleviated so much anxiety of, I have to flip back and forth between reference pages. I have to do this. I have to manipulate that. They were able to just be in virtual reality, taking this assessment and not really worrying about, well, what does this part, is this person moving on ahead of me or is this person doing this differently? They were able to actually just kind of be in their own zone and take their time through. Those are the best scores that I have gotten back on this particular lesson. Now, I taught advanced inorganic chemistry and it was acids and bases of um, metals. And it's a little bit quirkier than um, that the typical acid-based lecture, but they did phenomenal. I think my my test average was around eighty percent, and usually students do very poorly on that particular lesson um, and score about twenty percentage points lower. And for me, it was wow. Was it because they were just in a different, you know, mind state? They were alone in their homes, but they were also um, engaged and around one another, but um, it's something about being completely distraction-free where you're not able to, um, you know, kind of hear all the outside 
things that are going on that, that allow students to be able to focus. So usually students that have um, need longer test times or, you know, they need to not be distracted, you would put them in the front of the classroom or you would try to find some other kind of accommodation for them. And I didn't have to do that in this instance. Um, students were being accommodated while we being in a headset. It was wonderful. Oh man, that is great. That's wonderful. I have a question here from actually one of my classmates. I'd like to welcome Darren, Darren Warren Hernandez. He's one of my classmates, like I mentioned to you for my 8376 course that we're taking. And so he's asking here, you know, what tools do you love to create AR VR experiences with? He says he's dabbled with Reality Composer, Jigspace, and Adobe Project Arrow. So maybe something that you would do on your personal when you do some content creation on your, you know, on your own, any other tools that you might recommend or that you've, uh, you know, experienced? So right now I am working with the Unity platform. So just working in Unity and trying to figure it out. I can't say that I am this huge creator. I am still very much so in the learning stages of creating all this AR, VR content. And we are just starting to step into the space of we want to create our own scenes because we want the climate to be just as warm as our classrooms, just as we are able to create. Um, but I have created like IFX objects in the on the engaged platform where we can manipulate them. Or I've set scenes in that particular way out of the artifacts that have been available to us. Now, what I am trying to learn how to do, because I've been a part of this um, Apple Code and Create cohort where we're kind of learning how to use some Apple tools to create AR worlds. But like all of my tech stuff is kind of colliding where I'm, I'm, I'm in the learning phase of everything. Now, I have some students that, that use all of those um, that you, you mentioned, but I myself have only created in that engaged platform. So whatever they have available that I can use and or bring in from the web that is, um, you know, uh, open access resources that then I can put into our space. That's how I do my creation. So I'm very much, a, I'm not trying to code the space. I'm just trying to create the space. I'm a decorator. There you go. <laughs> of sorts. That's perfect. That's wonderful. You know, and like you said, you don't have to dive as deep, but you know, you're learning as you go. And just for the record, my friend David Hernandez actually works for Apple. <laughs> oh. Yes, he does work for Apple. So that's great when you mentioned, you know, some of the the work that you're doing with some of the creation tools. So I'm I'm sure that he's gonna be happy to hear that and he'll probably take it up, you know, to the top and you never know. We'll see you what happens. Know, right? Yeah, you never know. Yeah. But uh, he's a great, great, very, very smart gentleman that that I've had the pleasure of working and collaborating with in courses. And we just have that same passion for education and technology and innovating. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about, like we mentioned earlier, it's the word engage. I mean, engaging our students. And I want to come back a little bit to the conversation of, you said, it, to engage a student the same way for 16 weeks can be very difficult, you know, and oftentimes, you know, let's talk a little bit about higher ed as, you know, as I moved into higher ed with my grad, with my, you know, uh, masters, you know, it was lectures, but it was really content creation, project-based learning, submitting learning artifacts. As you move up and not now, you know, during doctoral studies, you know, first couple of, uh, um, courses have been, you know, really lecture, discussion, you know, reading books, partnering. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit, and I, and I shared this with you before we, we got on the chat, but, you know, this last semester, we had a professor who gave us a choice board. And to me, it was great that it was a different way to engage me as a learner in a different way where I get to pick and choose what I want to do. And like I mentioned to you, her, her rubric was as long as you get 21 contact hours, you can either mm -hmm. do lecture, yeah. you can attend a conference and view a couple of, you know, presentations. You can go ahead and read a book, do a book study. You can watch a movie and write a report. And then of course there wasn't a choice for podcasting, but I asked and I said, right. can I do a podcast? And she's like, sure. Why not? But what I wanted to share with you is because, I mean, from my experience, K through 12, and now as an instructional technologist, choice has always been something that's been very important because not everybody's going to learn the same way. But if you give them a choice as to, you know, certain tools, 
certain ways that, that, you know, and you just set kind of the loose expectation of, I still want to see that the learning took place. Mm -hmm. Some of my classmates, when she mentioned that, they just had this deer in the headlights look where they were confused. Like, I, I don't understand. Like, what do you mean? Like, you're, you're giving me a choice. And it took them a while to kind of process that. And, you know, I think it kind of goes back to the way I, at least when I grew up coming up through K through 12, it was, I was always told what I needed to do. I only had A, B, C, and D to choose from in a state test. I couldn't create anything and everything was told to me exactly how I needed to do. So right. now that, you know, your experience in higher ed and you mentioned how your students are just really engaged and that they get a choice, they're in, they're immersed in their learning they get different modality of receiving the information and they're engaged. What are you seeing as far as the trend in higher ed, I, at least maybe in, in your institution or the neighboring institutions and talking to your friends, is higher ed finally catching up to K through 12 as far as you know choices and uh, content creation and, and engaging students in that sense? Uh, just a little bit, just a little bit. You. Because academia is composed of the very young, new, fresh students right out of their PhD or postdoc, all the way to older professors who've been there for, you know, decades and have seen the evolution of the student, right? Um, and they're at towards the end of their career or at the at the seasoned end of things, and they have seen things you know, evolve and then be implemented and fail. And then you go back. So they kind of gotten into a place where they're like, I do it this way. This way works. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm going to sail through my career and be okay with that. Um, but I do think that some of us who are younger, who are creators, who are innovators, who are open to that, have opened up the window for them to say, I, I might could try that with these new students, or maybe I do need to try something different. So the thing about uh, educators that I have learned is even if they feel like there's a pattern of success that they've attained, um, they like to be successful and they still like to learn. And because of that, you can really convince them if you make a good argument for how this fits into them still being as successful with the student. And they will bite, but you also have to mentor them through. So the mentee, you know, the junior faculty then becomes the mentor. And you have to be okay with having that type of relationship and still listening to the wisdom of what they already know, because they know a lot and then taking it and transforming it and making it into something that they can use and not making it so hard and overwhelming either. So you might have a professor that uses rubrics often, but they want to give their students a little bit more leeway in how they answer or you know turn in products. So they can use their rubric that is based on just learning outcomes alone. And then if the student's product met that learning outcome, then they would get, give them the appropriate credit. And so then you can start to think about other ways that you can offer choices to students. I think one of my favorite things about reading when I was growing up were the books that gave you choice. Do you remember those books? Yes. Where it's like, do you want to choose this adventure or that adventure? And if you choose A, then go to page 81. And if you, you know, like, and I think that we have students that feel just that same way. They want to see what really fits their own authentic way of doing things first. And if you give them that choice, then you'll always get the best out of them, honestly. You know, they'll put forth their full effort because it's their thing, right? They chose it. So I love giving the choices. I think higher ed is catching up to doing that simply because there's also been more professional development of professors where they're seeing themselves more as educators and not just subject matter experts because students are coming in they can get the information off the like i said google it you can you can get it off of google 
but how are you going to teach me a different approach to retaining this information? That's what the VR is about, right? How can I engage and retain this information differently where it becomes a part of who I am versus just something I did in order to obtain the A? That's the thing. We have subject matter expert right here at our fingertips. So we don't necessarily need to be in a university setting always to get the knowledge. But what professors do offer is, like I said, that steady, um, consistent history of what success looks like over time and what success looked like in this student, this decade, the next students, cohort of students, and over time have built a picture of what success looks like and what those students had that other students need. And teaching students how to get there is more important than being the one that knows everything. Wow, that is wonderful. And I'm glad to see that, you know, and, and like I said, slowly, I had a wonderful experience in my uh, master's program, my master's in educational technology here at the university, who, like I said, David was part of too, as well. And it, it was project-based. It's kind of like, hey, you're, you're going to find a real world problem, whether it's in your work or anything, you're going to find a solution. And it was pretty much choose your tools, choose your way of doing it. And it was really like getting you to think outside the box and really pushing yourself to instead of the normal, well, let's lecture and this is the proper way and this is the linear way. Because one of the things you mentioned, it's there's different ways of solving a problem. I can go to Google, but because I was able to implement some of these you, the, these projects into my current work, it really became part of me. And then I was right. like, wow, like I invested myself in it because it was a problem that I wanted to solve at work. And I think that's very important that you hit on creating that learning experience that is with you. You've experienced it, you lived it, you were part of it, and you're mm -hmm. taking that with you. And I really love that you hit on that. That's something that's very important. So as we kind of start wrapping up here our show. Uh, I love to ask my guests the following three questions and they're oh. kind of just kind of just finishing up, you know, on a, on a nice happy note and everything like that. But uh, Dr. Morris, in your case right now, through your experience, what would you say currently is your edu kryptonite? What is it that makes you weak and you're like, oh, my goodness, like, I can't believe maybe that practice is still being done or, you know, what is your edu kryptonite? My edu kryptonite. My, this is funny because it's like a couple of things. It's kind of like my, my pet peeves, right? Yes. Is. Is this mindset that students will always be the way that they are. The, the amount of genius that they come in with is the amount of genius that they're going to leave with and that their, their success is actually based on SAT scores or uh, grades that they previously had or how they were able to show up in spaces when they were younger. For me, I don't see that. So when I see people that assess students based on simply the this ledger of what they previously accomplished without giving the least of those the opportunity to show that they can also still move forward and be successful, whatever that success looks like for them. That is like the thing that grinds my gear. So if you if you want to say anything is a fixed mindset, honestly, someone who just really feels like students come in a particular way, we only can give them as much as they already have accomplished or achieved. You know, like only the ones that have a SAT score of 1100 or above can do this work. All the rest of them, they can't. And I don't believe that because I've taught chemistry to a four-year-old before. And they've been able to answer questions in a way that has been like mind blowing. And no, I don't think that four-year-old was a genius necessarily. It was just that I made room for that child to be able to show what they knew and what they were able to process from it and then giving them realistic outcomes as to what growth looks like for you so i that if, if you want to know my edge of kryptonite is just um is that fixed mindset of of professionals that are in my my same 
space somewhat. Yeah. And even Excellent. students, students feel that way too about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And one more, actually there's two more. Okay. And the next one would be if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Would I be on this billboard? <laughs> yeah, it, like anything you'd like on the billboard, what would it be and why? Would it be a, a quote, a saying, something, a message? What would it be? Yeah, it would be um, humanity can't wait. Humanity can't wait. And I, I keep that actually is my, my little personal billboard behind me. I was asked the question, why do I do what I do? And I told, I really thought about it. And I was like, you know, I I do so much advocation for, for those who have different, different needs or special needs. Um, yes, that was a part of my origin story and who I am as a mother to a child with special needs and all that kind of stuff. But really, why do I actually go the extra mile? Why do I always put more into people? It's because humanity can't wait. They really can't wait for me to decide that it's okay for me to be innovative, to be a creator, to put new things out in the universe that I'm talented and gifted to be able to give. They can't wait. Like, so um, humanity is is in dire need of someone who cares enough about the world that we live in to continue to show up authentically as their whole self. So it reminds me every day to show up as my whole self because humanity can't wait. And uh, we all deserve to be heard, to be um, nurtured, to be um, uplifted and encouraged. And so it's really important that I, myself, who I call the compassionate chemist, uh, show up as that every single day. Wow. I love that. That's such a wonderful, wonderful message. Dr. Morris, it really, you know, resonates with me. And, you know, thank you for just being very authentic and very genuine. And like you said, just being present, listening, hearing, and advocating. And that's really what we really need more of. So thank you so much for that. And the last question, if you and I were to switch roles and this was your show and I was your guest, what would be one question you'd like to ask me? You know what? I actually thought about this today. <laughs> so this is a question that I want to ask you. You mentioned about people thinking that you can do so much um, and, and you're like, I don't do enough because you really take family very seriously. And so talk to me. I want I want to know how has your family created the success that you have or that we see versus um, in your mind where you thought you should be, you know what I mean? If you didn't have all of these other alternative responsibilities. So how has your family grounded you and also allowed you to flourish in the way that uh, you didn't think you could? Wow. <laughs> that is, it's interesting because I, I was on a podcast earlier this week and they kind of talked to me a little bit about that. And kind of it just goes back to very similar to you, my origin story. I mean, I know I never wanted to be an educator ever, ever. I just wanted to make money. And right. it, it, it all started it all started because, you know, growing up, uh, you know, my parents were immigrant parents, you know, they were Spanish speaking parents, mm -hmm. no education at all whatsoever. I saw my dad work for many years in a citrus farm out in the sun, driving tractors, sometimes uh, working overnight, uh, doing the irrigation for the citrus trees and everything. So we grew up on a little ranch, orange trees, orange blossoms, everything. I mean, it, I had a nice childhood and I'm only child. My mother, she would go and, um, you know, she'd clean homes, you mm -hmm. know, she would iron clothes for a living, go and it, it was, we're, we're poor. We, we came, you know, and so I didn't learn English until second grade. I, I learned by immersing myself in TV, so shows like Price is Right, PBS, Sesame Street, uh, Square One, things of that sort. All my favorites. Yeah, yeah. So as I went through school, you know, I always had the support of my parents because my parents were kind of that driving force of please don't end up like us. Please don't work as hard as we do or what we have to do. We we don't want you to be out here 
doing what we do. We want you to be successful work. And mainly their thing was, we just want you to work in air conditioning. That's it. Right. Like that, that was their goal. We want you to work in air conditioning for them. That was the world. Mm -hmm. If their son can work somewhere where there's air conditioning, they would have been happy. It doesn't matter if I was, you know, whatever, uh, whatever it could be <laughs> making paper clips, doing whatever it was, as long as I was in air conditioning, air conditioning. that was their goal. But what, really drove me and what has always been a driving force for me is that that I want to make my parents proud and I want I, I keep competing and oftentimes I compete against myself to continue to move forward like I did my master's and I was like you know what I want to get my doctorate you know what I want to go into higher ed now I want to teach because I, I always want to continue learning I want to make a difference I want to make an impact and that what my parents instilled in me and what I saw, it's like I'm, I'm doing it for them. I want them to see like that they can see themselves in me mm -hmm. as a successful doctor someday, yeah. you know, as a professor mm -hmm. someday, and as an innovator someday. And so, and again, my wife too, my lovely wife has been just a great support. And, you know, one of the things that I tell her is like, you know, this master's degree is as much yours as it is mine because you sacrificed a lot of Saturdays and Sundays and weekends and events because I had to do work. And I said, you know, in a couple of years, we'll both be doctors, you know, because yeah. you're in it with me. Absolutely. And so it, it's really that driving force. It's just uh, that my parents and my wife and that bring me that support and my my hunger for always learning. I'm always learning and wanting to innovate and see things differently. That's mm -hmm. really where that comes from. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like what you said, um, especially to hear your origin story. I think our stories are, are very similar in a lot of ways. And uh, my husband, whose family is originally from Jamaica, and he's first generation raised in the United States, kind of has that same exact kind of thing, just work in air conditioning. Like yeah. we just wanted you to work in, air, just have a, a, I hate to say white collar versus a blue collar kind of job. Just, you know, if you could just be inside because, you know, his father, uh, God rest his soul now, his, you know, was not, he, he worked off of the sweat of his, his brow. And, and so did my parents. And um, it has created in us a, a, so many uh, good traits and good attributes. And I think that we should always remember um, those that came before us because we do indeed stand on the shoulders of giants. And just like you, your wife is as supportive, my husband is number one. You see my gamer chair that he yeah. bought me and everything. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he's been he's been a jewel in, in making sure that I am always uh, tech ready and I know what I'm talking about. And uh, my son's stand in the gap for me so much five boys so i'm in a house full of of, of men so six men and and me um but i my, my my family has been very integral to me being who you see before you including my mother and my mother-in-law um who is who just recently passed but my mother-in-law who you know was able to women aren't able to do a lot of things because you know when they have children they become their focus and my mom and my mother-in-law, because they had lived that life, they wanted to see me thrive and they did everything in their power for me to be here right now, uh, speaking to you and being able to say, this is this is how I got here. Um, so my mom's name is Alice. My mother-in-law's name was Nina. I just have to actually send that, that shout out and that thank you up because they've been uh, the wind beneath my wings, honestly. That's so. wonderful. Oh, Dr. Morris, that's just great. And it's just so great to hear your story and then that level of support. And uh, David also here just throws out great session. Thank you, Dr. Morris, for sharing your story and your wonderful work that you're doing and as well to Alfonso for hosting. So uh, David's just great, great guy. And uh, I'm sure, like I said, maybe he'll probably connect with you. I have been uh, putting your links to your LinkedIn, uh, you know, bio. So, awesome. uh, you know, some of my classmates and anybody else who, uh, who wants to follow can go ahead and follow you there. And then, of course, all of this will go into the episode profile. So all our guests that are going to 
be either watching later on or revisiting the show and listening to it, you can find all the information at myedtech.life. The episode will be posted up shortly. Dr. Morris, thank you. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your world, sharing your passion, and just your how authentic and genuine you are in, in really wanting to make a difference and creating amazing experiences for all of your students. And may you continue to have great success. And, you know, being part of now of my PLF that I like to call my personal learning family, Yay. you are welcome back anytime. And maybe next time we may be able to have a round table where maybe we can bring some more of your colleagues, yes. whether they're there in your institution or various institutions that you may be connected with. So we can learn more about what higher ed is doing in implementing AR VR in, in the lecture halls or in the, in that set, higher ed setting. The ultimate team is what I call us. We um, have some great, I stand beside some great colleagues. And like I said, Saturdays are for VR, actually Thursdays as of this week was. Um, and so Dr. Vereen, Dr. Clark, Dr. Hamilton, Dr. Welcher, Dr. Harris, thank you for your love, support. Kendrick Brown, who's our provost. Uh, Michael Hodge, who wrote the grant that got us started. Deshante Carmen was our project manager that got us started at first. And Keith Howard is our PI on this Morehouse in the Metaverse uh, adventure that we're on. And so I, I thank them for from the bottom of my heart for always supporting me and lifting me up and allowing me to, to, to do the work that I'd love. So Perfect. Well, thank you. Well, hopefully many of those that you've mentioned shout outs out there maybe you can be on that round table and see you know how this all came together and just hear from all of y'all so again thank you so much dr morris to all our listeners and viewers thank you so much as always for all of your support we really appreciate you as we strive each and every week to just bring you the best that we can so you can take those knowledge nuggets and apply them in a, a special way, specific way, in, or just have them in your, in your tool belt so you Absolutely. can sprinkle them on to your current practice later on. So thank you so much, and we'll see you guys all next Saturday. Y'all take thank care, you. and don't forget, till next time, stay techie, my friends. <laughs>